What exactly is artificial intelligence? We speak of AI when computer systems perform tasks that usually require human intelligence. This includes, for example, recognizing images, making decisions, or engaging in dialogue. To do this, the AI systems must be equipped with knowledge and experience. You can program each individual instruction so that the machines solve the task step by step. Alternatively, you can use programs that learn from data themselves. This enables them to detect relevant information, draw conclusions, or make predictions. This is known as machine learning. This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, Artificial Intelligence and Dermatology. For dermatology as a whole, more than 2,000 diagnoses, how many images do we need to put through an AI system to make it robust? Augmentation of of our, our ability to make diagnoses and treatment is really becoming the buzzword. Deep learning refers to a type of modeling called a neural network. Hello, welcome to another podcast from the Scottish National Users Group for GP IT. I'm Andrew McElhinney and I'm a GP in NHS Forth Valley in central Scotland. Now today we're discussing a subject I have wanted to cover for ages and I'm delighted to have some really special guests for you to discuss it with. Yes, we are talking about the use of artificial intelligence to speed up the recognition and diagnosis of skin cancers and possibly a whole range of skin conditions. So, we're talking about trying to achieve an early diagnosis of skin cancer by taking a photograph, potentially with your smartphone, though not always, and being able to send this electronically for a specialist opinion. And this may be done by a combination of a computer's ability to pick up tiny abnormalities, as well as the specialist's knowledge and experience. And there's a lot of interest in this, not just here in Scotland and in the UK, but also, of course, in the USA and beyond. So today, I'm going to let you hear two conversations with experts on the subject, from both here in Scotland and also from the USA. It is always fun to have some international guests. So I'm going to start off by speaking to Dr Colin Morton, who's a consultant dermatologist here in the NHS in Scotland. And he's got a special interest in the field of artificial intelligence and skin cancer diagnosis. And then we've got a couple of guests speaking to us from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We've got the Professor of Dermatology, Dr Mark Davis, and he's actually an old friend of mine from medical school. He's obviously studied a lot harder than I did to get where he is today. And we're also delighted to have the Director of Digital Health and Artificial Intelligence and Dermatology at the Mayo Clinic, and that's Dr Dennis Murphy. Now, they've written a couple of papers on deep learning for dermatologists. So you're going to hear some talk about what a deep neural network is, hopefully learn a bit about how computers can be trained to recognise a skin cancer. And we also then get onto some of the practical problems that can occur, how you can have some unexpected biases occurring in machine learning. We're going to talk about the quality of photographs that can get sent in. And also consider why you tend to find that keeping a human in the loop is usually a good idea when you're starting to rely more on artificial intelligence. There are loads of things to think about if you're interested in this whole area. 
And after that, we'll come back to Colin for about 10 minutes at the end, and he's going to give us some of his thoughts on the discussion and his experience of the sort of practical difficulties that can arise as we try and develop the use of AI. So I hope at the end of all that, we're going to end up with a better sense of how things are progressing with AI and dermatology on both sides of the Atlantic. Hope you enjoy it. Colin, it's, it's uh, really kind of you to join us. And um, I mean, I know from working in Forth Valley for many years that you've been involved in trying to improve services for GPs and, and, and patients to diagnose skin cancer. And you brought in this photo triage many years ago. And uh, that's been a great way of getting people with suspicious lesions seen quicker. And then in the last 18 months, you provided a fantastic advice service for GPs. And we've been sending in images, sometimes that we've got from patients, sometimes that we take ourselves and actually to get an answer within a couple of days as to whether or not patients need to be concerned or not is just fantastic. Would you be able to just um, describe what some of that's like from your end? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, you know, sitting as a consultant dermatologist in uh, NHS Force Valley here um, centrally in Scotland, and I sit also um, as clinical operational lead for a skin cancer AI consortium in Scotland, you know, we really are keen to both uh, harness the opportunities we have now in terms of uh, can we secure images with uh, our referrals of patients to really shorten the patient pathway, trying to get patients into definitive care at the, the first point of contact in a, into a specialist service where that service is required. And uh, obviously all the, the gains to the health service, if we can do that, but, you know, not least the, the gains to the patient and not having to trail up and down to hospital multiple times before a problem's actually sorted. I, I've always compared, uh, you know, the patient journey with the experience that we have issues with our cars. You know, we all would wish just to go into a garage and get it sorted when we hear a noise. But increasingly, cars go the way of patients that we, we go in for a, a first check, then we go back for a diagnostic visit, then we get booked in again for the actual actual treatment, you know, uh, remedy where the part has been ordered. You know, we're going less efficient uh, there. So I'm keen in healthcare that we um, stem the tide of that and turn it the opposite way. And with the AI consortium, it's really taking this to the next level of you know, seeing the opportunities that artificial intelligence can bring, seeing already its use in, you know, the, the very visual um, specialties in radiology, strong potential um, already in pathology and digital pathology. And and really now that in terms of the, the clinical interfacing specialties with patients, ophthalmology and dermatology, such as two specialties where um, there can be a, a big bonus if we do it correctly uh, and if we um, you know, find the, the, the right solutions out there, but the potential is great that we can do good things for our patients, for the health service uh, by embracing AI. Yes, and we've got a really interesting conversation just to let people hear in which I've spoken to an old friend of mine who's professor of, of dermatology in the Mayo Clinic and also with his director of digital health and artificial intelligence. So it was a, it was, it was a really interesting discussion about the use of AI. Just before we get on to that, um, I mean, whenever we send you in pictures at the moment, could you give us a ballpark, like just a rough idea of what proportion of those at the moment you can reassure that are nothing to worry about? Have you got an idea of that number? It depends partly on the route we are getting the, the images in uh, from because the quality of images has quite a part to, to play um, during the pandemic in particular. You know, we have in, increasingly needed to rely on patient generated images where it's not been possible for patients to come up to get 
uh, higher quality images taken. And certainly that knocks um, accuracy uh, in terms of it does still quite often, if we can get a, a good enough close-up image, get make some useful turnaround uh, of that. Um, one of the systems we have, uh, the Dermatology Digital Assessment um, Service, where patients are asked to upload images um, as, as part of their care as an alternative to face-to-face. When we audited that, we, we could still show that 80% of the images were usable in terms of the, the numbers we can confidently then turn around to a patient and say, look, we you know we don't need to do anything further. That's harder to say because within that mix, you know, I'm I'm inclined to say maybe between 10 and 20% of the time we could probably do that. And many of the images we receive are sufficiently good quality that we can offer a treatment advice around. So this is beyond skin cancer diagnosis about uh, seeing images of psoriasis and eczema and acne. So we can get an idea of severity without necessarily a too high a quality image. But when we get down to true diagnostics, um, then, um, yes, it's important to be realistic and, and think with with patient-generated images, that figure will be lower. When we had our photo triage service with a medical photographer out in the community taking images, and because of the high quality there, the opportunity of dermoscopic high quality images attached to that, then the opportunity is significantly more. So you know you probably are can comfortably double the uh, number of patients that you can reassure at that first point of contact. The percentage, of course, does in part reflect so many moving parts here because if if it's a fairly open access to that imaging then uh, often it is the more innocent benign lesions are getting photographed and therefore the percentage of reassurance is higher where we see imaging particularly if we can be seeing that image coming back to um, the you know if we're working in a traditional model of patient primary care and um, secondary care if that image flows up to secondary care has a, a diagnostic label put on it we hope there's a whole educational opportunity here and i certainly saw that when we were with photo triage in its full operation Mark and Dennis, it's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you today. I'm really looking forward to getting into some deep learning. But first, could I just get you both to say what your roles both are and where you're speaking from? Yeah, um, so I'll go first. I'm, um, um, I'm a former classmate of Dr. Andy McElhinney um, in the Royal, from the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. And after doing training in general medicine, I came to the States and did another internal medicine residency followed by training in dermatology. And then I joined the staff here at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, Mayo Clinic Rochester, it's known as. And I have been here on staff for the last 28 years. At this point, I'm professor of dermatology and chair of the Department of Dermatology here at Mayo Clinic Rochester. So um I'm on my fifth year as chair here and looking forward to having this conversation. Um, AI is a whole new area that I've only been introduced to in the last few years. And we're thrilled to have Dr. Dennis Murphy join our staff here, who's a real expert in data science. So I'll hand it over to you, Dennis. Thank you, Mark and, and um, Andy for the introduction. So my name is Dennis Murphy. I'm a physicist by training. I was interested in particle physics for many years. So I studied at Stanford and then at Yale and had a stint in quantitative finance where I, I ran a, a futures trading group using machine learning and artificial intelligence methods to 
try to understand better opportunities or imperfections in the futures market. And then I guess about eight years ago, I moved to Mayo Clinic, Rochester, following my wife. And since then, I've been applying the, my skills and expertise to working on problems generally across healthcare, but now recently specifically in dermatology. Plug here, I think that dermatology is an excellent subspace to try to apply machine learning and higher methods because it's such an image-centric specialty that we really have a lot of data, uh, which is the currency of modern AI. So thank you both for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. And our podcast is all about how technology can best support healthcare uh, in lots of different guises. So, so I really want to get on to your review paper, which you, you both produced last year. And the two parts were published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, I think. Deep learning for dermatologists. Right. Dennis, you, you said in the introduction, now I hope I get this right, that we've got artificial intelligence and then we have a branch of this called machine learning i.e. Um, systems learn from data, start to identify patterns, and then using algorithms can actually make decisions. And then there's deep learning, which is a subset of that, which has been shown to be particularly effective in, in medical image analysis. And I think you mentioned specifically x-ray images and digital images. Have I got that approximately right? Uh, absolutely. So, so would you be able to explain, hopefully in fairly simple terms, a bit more about all of that? Sure, certainly. So I think that one thing uh, when when I discuss these types of topics with with colleagues that I, I like to lead with is don't worry too much about things like AI versus machine learning versus deep learning versus statistical learning. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nomenclature that moves around in this field, and the reason is pretty simple. It's because this is an amalgamation of a bunch of different academic areas of interest. So we have statistics, statisticians, computer scientists, uh, healthcare professionals all coming together. And so what you end up with is this sort of potpourri of nomenclature. So when in doubt, don't fixate too much on the specific terms. But deep learning, the definition has changed over time. But right now, I think it's fair to say that it refers to a type of modeling called a neural network, and very specifically to deep neural networks. And what that means, you know, in a little bit more detail is a neural network you can think of as like a logistic regression or a regular like linear regression with, a, with some extra sauce tossed in. And a, a deep neural network is just a layering of these. So you might think of it as if you asked well, one person's opinion, and then that person asked another person's opinion, and so on. And then after three or four opinions, you, you end up with a decision. And so that's what a deep neural network refers to, or deep learning. Deep learning refers to deep neural networks, which mean models that have multiple layers, each one of which learns something specific. And then the hope is that at the end of all that learning, you end up with a better decision than you know, just looking at something that might have only one or two opinions. It's almost like a big electronic brain. Is it? Is that fair to say? Well, um, remembering that you're not talking to a neurologist, <laughs> I will. I'll refrain from you know putting anything too close to a human analogy. But the I tend to think of it more like a computer program because in fact that's what it really is. Like that's what all these things really are. They're they're programs and. There are a lot of analogies to biological situations, but I'm not sure that they 
they, they might do more harm than good, to tell you the truth. And how important do you think it is for clinicians to know about deep neural networks? I think for your average clinician in practice, it's, it's not important at all, to tell you the truth. I mean, essentially, we might see the fruits of all that deep learning, and that'll help us with making diagnosis and treating, right? I think what, what might be more important is the socialization aspect of reacting to results. And this is something Mark can comment on uh, more knowledgeably than I can. But, you know, if I were a physician in practice, I think, I, and I can say this, like, from, from being a futures trader, you know, using, using uh, predictive models to inform my decisions about what to buy and what to sell, it was really important to me to understand the limitations of those models, like the things that they could do well and the things that they, you know, might do poorly. And so I imagine that it might be somewhat analogous in healthcare. So it's perhaps not important for the, the end user to understand what's going on under the hood, but to know like any tool, when to use it and when not to, and how much trust to put in it, that sort of thing. That's where I think the, the main impact or the main like interface would be. And could you tell us a little about how you go about training an algorithm to do something as important as recognizing a skin cancer? Uh, so there's, I guess we could discuss this in two ways. One would be uh, sort of the more technical things and I'll, I'll do that quickly. And then after that, I think there's like a more practical version. And to be honest, I'm gonna lead with this. I think that the practical and the human aspects of the modeling, like making something useful are actually more challenging in many cases than the technical. But the technical things, basically what you need to do if you're interested in building a model for anything in, in medicine and in, you know, frankly, cross-platform variety of different fields, the number one thing is the data. Well, actually, the z number zero thing is the question. I mean, an important and uh, hopefully relevant and hopefully answerable question to ask. But then after that, the most common form of machine learning or artificial intelligence is something called supervised learning. In the supervised learning paradigm, what's required is a set of examples. So in the context of dermatology, they might be pictures of lesions and a set of outcomes. So they might be things that were biopsy proven, you know, with respect to those lesions. So let's say I have, I'm interested in distinguishing between melanoma, seborrheic keratosis, and benign nevi. Uh, if I wanted to train a artificial intelligent algorithm to distinguish between those three things on say clinical photographs or dermoscopic photographs, what I would need to do is acquire those photos, acquire what we call labels. So for each photo, I would need to know, am I looking at a melanoma? Am I looking at an SK? Am I looking at a, ne a benign nevus? And then I would take that set of pictures and labels, and I would feed them into a deep neural network. And at the very superficial level, the types of places that you might do that are, you, we use frameworks that are invented, believe it or not, completely by industry. So the two most popular uh, deep learning AI frameworks in, in uh, use today, one is developed by Google, the other is developed by Facebook. So, you know, to answer your original question, to train a deep learning model on something that's relevant to healthcare or to skin disease in particular, what you must have is an initial data set that consists of 
the photos that you like to analyze, and then the labels, those outcomes. And I'm sure it won't shock you to learn that, that often it's quite straightforward to obtain the photos, but obtaining the outcomes is uh, substantially trickier. No, that's really interesting. And am I right in thinking that neural networks, almost like humans, are also prone to biases? Of course. I mean, are, are these things like selection bias and information bias, these kind of things, or is it different? Well, I'll tell you, Andy, what, what, uh, what I might mention a little bit more is, um, so all of the normal statistical biases that we're used to, things like if all of my patients happen to be white Midwesterners because I work in Minnesota, you know, that sort of thing notwithstanding, I, I think that's familiar to most of our listeners. What's a little bit different about the neural network and about deep learning AI in particular, is that it can really fixate on things that humans might not appreciate a priori. So if Mark and I are designing a study and we're looking at inflammatory dermatoses or, or whatnot, we're going to do the best that we can to assemble a cohort, which is representative of the cohort that we care about applying the model to. And so for things like, you know, Fitzpatrick, skin color and geographic distribution, that sort of thing, we can do our best ahead of time. But what's new in the AI ML world are artifacts that present themselves and the biases that they cause downstream in the training process. And so something as silly as when a slide, let's say we're in the dermatopathology space and we, we're working on a study where we've digitized biopsies. Scanner that we use to digitize those biopsies can actually leave a fingerprint in the image. And this is the kind of thing that a, like a traditional statistician wouldn't account for in the study design. But let's say that Mark and I are working on you know, a reasonable rare disease, but if we're, we're looking at something where we need a bunch of examples and our, our home turf doesn't generate enough of those. So we call our colleagues up in Scotland and ask, hey, uh, Andy, can you and your friend send us a, a bunch of slides of rare disease A? It may very well be the case that the scanner that the Scottish team uses and the scanner that the Minnesota team uses leave a distinct fingerprint in the way that they digitize the slides. So it's not apparent to the human eye looking at it. But if you take the computer's point of view, which of course knows nothing about light, it knows nothing about reflection, it doesn't understand anything about color, just sees numbers and pixels, it's a matrix, it may quite easily learn that all the Scottish examples, which happen to be of the rare disease, because that's what we needed to augment to make our cohort have enough examples, it may learn the Scottish scanner rather than the disease of interest. And so that's where that's where the new concern appears. Things where the algorithm, because it has the ability to learn all sorts of different, basically it's you won't go far wrong if you think of a neural network as something that looks for patterns. And it's looking for all these patterns. And there's patterns that we can't see that might have to do with something which is wholly unrelated to the outcome of interest. We don't care about which scanner it came from, we care about the disease. And if we have so many from one scanner that are of one type, we might learn that. So that's uh, a longer answer than what you wanted, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's where a bias appears 
that's novel to AI studies. So things that you don't expect at all ahead of time that are just a generate, you know, they're a result of the generating process. Thank you. And I guess that possibly links with something else I was going to ask at the end about maybe about validation of algorithms. So before we get onto the clinical, you know, use of, of AI in the NHS in, in the UK, they're looking at developing AI and and looking at the governance around it and the ethical standards and all the evidence supporting it. But I, I guess according to an NHS report, there isn't a proper standard yet for validating algorithms. W- would that also be the case with yourselves? Absolutely. I, I you know, there this is something that I follow quite closely and I expect that the United States government will eventually uh, try in some way or another to um, you know, to implement to implement a, a vetting procedure, but to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing currently available. Okay, no, that's really interesting. I mean, it's trying to compare progress on both sides of the Atlantic, really. And I, I guess I was also interested if if you have a system that is quite heavily based in AI, and obviously intended to expedite diagnosis. Does that need to be certified or medical legally uh, insured to be usable? From my from my perspective, where where I start when I think about things like that are with two examples. So one is in healthcare and one's in aviation, and this is related to also you know a common question is about the black box nature of AI algorithms and what you know does it bother us that there's you know not necessarily an easily interpretable result, and so. Two things that I'll just throw up for as food for thought um, and then invite Mark to comment are, we routinely use medication where we don't necessarily understand the mechanism of action or, or else we, we decide that we understand it at a certain level, but maybe all of the chemical reactions that are involved are not you know, clearly defined and whatnot. Uh, but we, we're happy to use those medications because they result in the desired outcome, the patient gets better. And as a second, you know, food for thought, you know, starter topic in in aviation, we we readily embrace the idea of autopilot. So when you fly, uh, you know, from from Scotland to Minnesota to come visit Dr. Davis, chances are excellent that that pilot is not flying the plane the vast majority of the time. The, The computer is flying the plane. And the pilot's there to sort of just oversee everything. So I, I think those are two good starting points for both like black box discussions and as a lead into where we might consider, you know, medical legal concerns. Well, that's really interesting um, because I, I came across this this paper that was in Nature about five years ago, but it's all about opening the black box of AI. Um, so I guess this might be a time to ask you, Mark, I mean, is that something that physicians are now ready to do? You know, I would, I would say that we're not at really at a stage to, to depend on AI in in, in dermat in clinical dermatology at this point. Um, I think we're just in the in the experimental phase where we're just literally gathering information about what we can do, how we might analyze images, trying to validate um, um, any information that we have. But I don't think we're ready for the clinical practice yet quite. Um, but I do think 
we have we are we are we are getting ready so you know for example there are machines out there to photograph patients from every angle um, and to analyze each of their images and to compare those images to another point in time um, and you know there's some preliminary data that that might be very useful in future skin exams so in the future you know you can you could you could foresee a future that each your your yearly skin examination could be instead of being done by a clinician but it would be stepping into a photographic booth and the photographic booth analyzing all your moles um, and telling you is there anything that are, are to be concerned about and that um, if the computer churns out that you should be concerned about this one on the right back that you would analyze that and consider biopsying it as directed by the computer. I could see um, um, a scenario like that in the future, but I think we're still in the planning phase of coming up with the new machines, trying to see how they work, how they analyze data and, um, and whether they're useful or not. Mark, one of, one, of the, one of the things we've seen over here, you know, probably during the COVID-19 pandemic has been a real explosion in the use of, of technology for consulting. So patients going online, sending us in images, sending us in emails. So, so, you know, as GPs, primary care doctors, then we can send them to consultants for advice. So it does seem like a sensible time to be developing systems for patients to send in images. And I wonder, I mean, I guess as a dermatologist, you, you know, you could see them coming straight through to the consultants, but as a GP, I might think, well, okay, I could maybe take a picture with a dermatoscope and send it on. What, what do you think? Is the quality of pictures going to be good enough if patients take them on their smartphones to use them? You know, we, we are experimenting with that at the moment, and we've actually found it to be more challenging than what we thought. And, and it, a lot depends on the quality of the data that, that's been sent to us. So, you know, we we'll frequently get um, patients asking, uh, sending in a, um, a, an iPhone image. Now, the iPhone or other equivalents, they're fantastic images, but they're often blurred, even despite the quality of these images. And um, they're taken from awkward angles. And um, we can't see the exact details we want. We don't see the dermoscopy that we want. We don't see those moles in the context of the entire skin integument, because, um, you know, often what you're judging is, is this mole any different to the other ones that the patient has? Is it the ugly duckling that we're all worried about that might indicate a melanoma? So, um, you know, a lot of those images of clinical lesions, some of them we can make a judgment on, but a lot of them we just have to say, well, we'd really prefer to see them in person and be able to look at them, inspect them, palpate them, look at them in the context of everything else and, and make a judgment. So those images are finding their place and we're working on that. But um, I think it, it still is a long way to go. And it, certainly we can't do it for all images that are sent in. Often as not, we we'll say, even with the dermatoscopic images that are sent in, that have been taken by our colleagues who are physicians of their patient's skin, and we still say we really need to see that in person for the reasons I just stated, yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. We're, we're coming across exactly the same issues over here. And there is a funded uh, program in, in Tayside to try and do the same kind of thing. And it keeps taking longer than we expect yeah. to, to actually work because of those kind of practical problems. I, I was discussing the idea of, of machine diagnosis uh, with my wife and, and she was saying she wasn't sure she would trust a machine who told her a lesion was nothing to worry about but she might believe it if it told her that it was something to worry about. You know, so to me, that's two sides of the same coin, but it's just an interesting interpretation. Yeah. 
do, 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 you think, do you think the public will trust you know, these kinds of diagnoses? That's a great question. Um, hard to know, hard to know. I mean, because as humans, we even if, when we're very experienced, we can be wrong as well when we look at a skin lesion. But patients trust us because they know that we have the experience and, um, and that we have the training um, and that we have an MD behind our name. So when we say we think that you could observe something instead of biopsying it, they'll, they'll, they'll sometimes accept that, sometimes not actually, <laughs> too. But will they accept that a machine tells them that it, that it doesn't need to be worried about? I don't know. I think time will tell. Um, we do trust machines to, in other areas of our life, to tell us things. Um, so maybe with time, it'll be, it'll be acceptable. I, I guess there's always the question of driverless cars to think about as well. Yes, that's right. Will we accept those driverless cars? Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to the day whenever, you know, we can use computers to augment our intelligence, you know, rather than try and replace our intelligence. Is that fair? Well, I think that's the I think I think that more and more people are talking about augmentation of, of our our ability to make diagnoses and treatment is really becoming the buzzword rather than replacing us, because I think people recognize that a human does have a context from which they come um, and a context into put things. So if a machine machine learning churns out an answer to, say, a skin lesion that is completely off the wall, a human being will be able to recognize that. And I think that will always, that always will have the potential to, to occur. Dennis, would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've been in the thick of building predictive models for more than 15 years now. And I'm a big fan of what the literature calls human in the loop. I really think that there's, there's absolutely a place for artificial intelligence and machine learning in healthcare, but the context is so important that what we really needed, the, the, the most prominent role, the most promising role rather, is, is one as an advisor, not just making a decision outright. Thank you. So, so that's reassuring us that we'll have a job for a while yet, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Mark and Dennis, you've been really kind to give us your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, I, I'd love to continue the discussion sometime in the future, May, maybe in person. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Come, out, come over to Minnesota or we'll go over to Scotland. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm just wondering which is colder at the moment. I'm guessing probably you guys in Rochester. We're heading that way. But I think Scotland is um, cool enough itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we have to de defrost the cars this morning. So it's getting to that oh. time of year. Again. So you're colder than us right now. <laughs> but it could change within the week. Oh, I know. I know. Well, listen, I, I think we're just about to run out of time. So I'm going to thank you very much and, and wish you all the best for the festive season. Absolutely. Same to you, Andy. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thought there were some really interesting points in the conversation that, you know, that we had with Mark and Dennis. I think in terms of not just understanding the potential benefits from AI, but also maybe the limitations currently. And, you know, for example, they talked about specific biases, you know, not just that you might expect, but also some that you might not expect entirely unique to the neural networks. But then I think this issue about in the clinical situation, trying to work out, like you say, whether a a lesion needs to be seen and the patient needs to be examined. And the same kind of issues about images sometimes being a bit blurry. And I, I guess there's also issues that we touched on about how much people will trust 
a computer diagnosis versus a, a consultant, uh, and also just like you say, the, the quality control around all of this. So, so there's, there's, there's lots of similar sort of issues. I just wonder how you see the progress on this side of the pond, you know, compared with maybe what they're able to do over in the Mayo. Yeah, you know, I think what chimed for me was uh, hearing um, comments about quality of image. And this is where I, I think the comparison with radiology is, is very strong. That you know, we, we don't for a moment think that an X-ray image or you know high quality MRI or CT, if it's just done in a sort of um, amateurish way, we we would be thinking, how on earth can you get clinical value and accuracy and diagnosis from that? Whereas I think we've yet to appreciate that photography should be considered in a similar way. We're doing work as part of the consortium and along with my colleague, Prof Colin Fleming and Dundee, around DICOM standards around skin images. So you know, recognising that you know it's important that there is that we try to recognize a bundle of information. Um, so getting um, obviously sort of the, the quality of the image itself, thinking about additional essential metadata to uh, attach to it so that um, in, uh, again, with radiology, we would be expecting that someone, uh, you know, assessing a radiology image would be thinking about what the age of the person was that they were looking at. You know, that's going to have some bias towards it. So recognizing the importance of getting that that information and, and that quality is is important and that we need to really bottom this out now that's not to say that there's going to be potential in the future for saying that actually poorish quality skin images might be quite good for certain things just to get us over a threshold you know uh, do, do you need to be seen do you not need to be seen but if you're going for the top end of of the capability of ai of saying can we trust the AI algorithm to actually make the diagnosis, uh, so to the point that um, there's not necessarily a human involved. You know that's the kind of scary future bit of this. Um, then uh, I think we'd all agree we want the highest quality information going in there. We want to that algorithm to be aware of the age group, some of you know skin type, what various other essential uh, bits of information to get that highest likelihood of uh, reaching an accurate clinical diagnosis. Um, In terms of bias, um, yeah, I think we so often in life um, read about something, think, yeah, that's real good potential. That sounds exciting. We hear maybe there's one or two products out there already and think job's done, it's sorted. And I think then when you start to read into it, um, you know, there's the the main issue being that uh, although there's been a, an explosion of publications in the last few years, it's usually in fairly contrived research settings, um, really down to the point where you're getting the computer to almost be making a binary choice, yes or no. And we know that in clinical life, it's very frequently not that straightforward. So um, the overused term real world, um, you know, experience that really needs to um, interface with AI, and, and we need to, to work through that. But then there's the kind of the slightly annoying things that, you know, by tradition um, in in many hospitals that have medical uh, photography systems, we are very um, limited in Force Valley, but um, there is a tradition of having labels uh, alongside lesions, um, maybe dots uh, put on, and um, that uh, means that um, it already identifies a group of lesions that there is some importance around. 
And of course, the computer is doesn't know quite whether it's the lesion or the marker is the important thing within the, the area it's looking at. So it tends to overinterpret that. And if there is a system that inadvertently is tending to be uh, labeling an image in some way that's going to be more likely to cancer, then you can overcall that. The minute then you try and put that into a real world setting without labels, that your algorithm is just not working the same. So um, there's there's so many much learning we've we've got. Um, we we also recognise that it's not uh, easy to necessarily transplant solutions that have been done in one part of the world to another just because of different skin type, uh, different settings where the images are taken. So um, I, I vaguely recall one study that I think was from Asia and they transplanted the algorithm into North America and it was kind of woeful level of uh, success. Uh, so that's just a kind of warning shot to, to the, the, having a big pool of images generated within the same, for the same type of patients that we're seeing within a, a country where we're wanting to use um, the the um, the AI system is going to be important. That's part of the work of the, the AI um, Skin Cancer Consortium here in Scotland. Yes, and it's um, it's fascinating to hear the same sort of issues that Dr. Dennis Murphy was talking about in, 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 the, in the conversation as well. Now, you, you've obviously been arguing as well that there's a lot of potential for non-cancer diagnoses through AI as well, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to a certain extent, we have been at risk of trying to challenge AI uh, at the top end in the sense of that most important thing that, you know, it is unforgivable in many ways that we do not, as clinicians, want to miss skin cancer. We do not want to miss um, melanoma. We've got about 45 different types of, of skin cancer out there. Again, there's an issue that current apps will tend to focus on the most common skin cancers. So the risk is that it may not have experience, not have any training on the rarer types. And as a profession, that's so often what is, I, I guess, the value we add that, yes, we know how to support and treat general um, skin presentations, but we have that sort of detective nouse to recognize when we're seeing something unusual and think, pause, what is this? How can we get more information? Take it on from there. And, and we need to be able to translate that into the AI um, solutions. But in terms of for dermatology as a whole, more than 2,000 diagnoses, how many images do we need to put through an AI system, an AI algorithm to make it robust uh, to recognize and to, to help us? But you know, again, there's two levels of this. There's just being able to get um, the, the sort of early stage AI work running um, so that it's a help, but everything is overseen by humans, by um, dermatologists, but that we ultimately would like to think that we are accumulating a sufficient large set of labelled images that can then be used for training purposes to validate the uh, AI solutions that, are, that uh, you know will be developed so that we can get to that point of making as much use and maximise the opportunity that AI can bring. Yeah, it's a fantastic um, subject to discuss and uh, I'm sure there's lots of potential for more discussions in the future, but I guess we'd better wind up there for today. But um, I just want to say, I mean, the service that you provide for us in Fourth Valley is fantastic and uh, we do appreciate the speed of response, you know, that you're able to give us at the moment. And uh, I, hope, I hope your Christmas isn't going to be too uh, disturbed by Omicron. No, well, um, obviously the the sort of day to day with the health services again is being uh, impacted, and 
uh, whether you know we're needing to modify our um, what uh, our daily routine is once again. But uh, yeah, like yourself, uh, best uh, best wishes and uh, um, yeah, enjoy and yeah, I, I suspect we'll have opportunity for further discussions on this uh, topic going forward. And we're also got a short life working group in Force Valley up and running to to try and get images captured at the point of referral or as near as possible. So we've got the, the idea of kind of click centres that we're going to try and uh, champion. So patients, a little bit of photo triage, but the next version of patients um, at the time of referral, um, they're being recognised that an image can be captured and that uh, they get an appointment to get a, an image taken in a locality setting. So it's not too far from home. Uh, and the second model that we're keen to roll out is the, the this concept of the pass through app, where if a uh, primary care practitioner was is able to to capture an image at the point of referral then the benefit of these pass-through apps is the minute you click the button then all all evidence of the image on that smart device is is gone um <laughs> we're trying to get a system you know it the, the product's there already but it's just information governance security obviously engagement to know that everyone's feeling comfortable with this model but you know we're really wanting to try and make uh, some significant steps forward in, in force valley thanks a million colin i appreciate that's it that's great okay good okay. to speak to you cheers bye bye so thanks for listening everybody that's been quite a deep dive into some deep learning for you but it is a really interesting area to think about and definitely one to keep an eye on for the future Now, snug podcasts are a bit like buses. You have to wait ages for one, and then two come along at once. So, we're planning to give you another special Christmas podcast by the end of next week. And we're going to have some more special guests for you, both to reflect on how 2021 has been for them, and also give you some good ideas for Christmas books. And, this is the best bit, we'll be finding out about what life is like in Snug, which is a small town on the coast of southern Tasmania. Did you know that? And we're going to hear what Christmas is going to be like for them over there. So do join us. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify, and you can then catch up with some of the other episodes we've done. Bye for now.